0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On October 13th and 14th, Fidelity Investments Canada proudly hosted an in-person event for financial advisors, featuring several Fidelity portfolio managers and subject matter experts. On today's Fidelity Connects podcast, we're bringing you one of these sessions, featuring a discussion between portfolio manager, Jeff Moore and moderator, Pat Bolland. Inflation, Earnings, Recession fears and upcoming moves by central banks continue to dominate headlines. Jeff unpacks all of this and more in today's discussion with Pat. Jeff is a fixed income portfolio manager and alongside his colleagues in Fidelity's fixed income headquarters in Merrimack, New Hampshire, he is involved in many funds for Canadian investors including Fidelity Multi-Sector Bond Fund, Investment Grade Total Bond, Global Bond and Global Core Plus Bond ETF to name a few. In addition to providing his thoughts on the markets and business cycle, Jeff also explains the similarities and differences between Fidelity's multi-sector fund lineup. He also takes questions from the live audience. Also, please note there were a few slides displayed to the live audience. This podcast was recorded on October thirteenth, 2022. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. There was
1: some big news this morning CPI, and I would think that that would play into the fixed income marketplace. Yeah. What did you make of the print? So it was hot, um, over 8%, but
2: not horribly hot, but hot. Okay, so basically, we're going to lock the Fed in for longer but maybe we've taken the height of the rate hikes. You know, we've put a cap on that. So I think that's what the market took today. If you looked at the components of CPI, the services piece warmed up a little bit. And the problem with that is services is generally labor, right? And so when you get labor sticky, and so that can be hard to get out of CPI. So the way we think, uh, and I had a call this morning at 5 a.m. this time, we were on with Aditi and Kana and Mike and Alan. Their thought process is that The CPI, we don't have to worry about nines anymore and eights. We have a path forward in the next six months to that five, four and a half, five-ish CPI. But to get below that, we have some more issues to deal with. So the way the bond market took today, we sold off the middle part of the curve. The long end is sort of flat today, hasn't moved at all. And so what that's saying to us is that we've taken out the rate cuts we had in 2023, they're gone. We added one more hike for 2022. So now we got 375s coming, two 375s coming. And then we have no cuts in 23. And the first cuts won't be till sort of mid to late 24.
1: And are you positioned for that? Or did that change this morning? Yeah, we should be in great shape today. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. As you say, let's break it down a little bit because that wage inflation is the the sticky part. Yeah. What's the roll off time on that? Well, that's the problem. You almost need unemployment
2: for that. Which means a recession. It could mean a recession. Remember, there's like 12 sectors in our economy. The way I look at recessions, sectors go into recession, not the economy, right? And some sectors will go into recession. So at any one time, two or three sectors are in recession. Even when we feel like we're booming, somebody else may not be. They may be at the end of their life and stuff like that. So We have more sectors that could go into a downturn, but I'm not sure at the whole economy level yet where we stand. In fact, the real economy is held up pretty well, and I think one of the reasons it has is most of us have line of sight on our jobs. So until we lose that line of sight on our jobs, that the layoffs are coming, I have a feeling a few of the sectors that are consumer-driven will feel okay, because people will feel like, I have a job, I have some flexibility, I have some ability to... You know, affect you know how I live,
1: and and I'm not worried about not having the income. Yeah, but right now we're seeing a boatload of help wanted signs. I now, know. granted, at McDonald's and maybe you know retail stores and so on, lower echelon jobs, but still, there's a lot of demand. Well, you think
2: about us, and you think about demographics, and I'm always on demographics. You know, we're heading into this really tough demographic period for the G10. So we're looking at. You think about um, China, for instance. You know, the Chinese working population could fall by 25% working age in the next 20 years, over the next 20 years. 25%, you know, that's hard to replace, because remember, our whole tax code is designed to tax workers, not retirees. And if our labor force is falling, Mm -hmm. which in all of the G10, other than Canada and US, it's falling, right? We still have a labor force that's getting bigger, so tax code would say we should still expect higher revenues, right?
1: That's the, the, the big thing right now, and, and workers are gonna be a big part. Canada's trying to address that through immigration. That's not the case in the United States. So Again, long-standing problem that won't go away. Well, and the U.S. does have a lot of immigration still. Remember, even though maybe
2: hasn't doesn't have as much as we would like it to have, and as much as I would like it to have, there is still a lot of immigration coming. In fact, if you look on net in the G10, two countries had positive immigration growth in the last two years. You know them, Canada and U.S. I heard Darren say he likes North America. That's my trade. It's Fortress North America for the next 10 or 20 years because the U.S. and Canada are, on absolute and relative basis, pulling away from the planet.
1: Hmm. That's a good thing. It's for us. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, let's go back then and see how the bond market has done year to date, and then we'll go from there. How have we done? Badly. It's had big negative return. Uh, yeah, it's been
2: as big a negative return as I've ever seen. Uh, obviously. Uh, I only started working in the 1990s, so I don't know a lot about the 70s, but this feel like it. If you um, think about the bond market, we went from a, an era, a year ago, where we had massive financial repression globally from central bankers. Uh, we issued, we spent f- fiscally like gangbusters. 30, 40% of GDP was spent in the last few years in Canada US. And all of that on one hand has led to, there's no unemployment. On the other side of it is the Federal Reserve had to get off to zero. And they were way late to the party. And the later they waited, the more they had to raise rates. And now we're at the point where the bond markets move so much that we've taken years and years of rate hikes and just jammed them into an eight-month period. And it's hurt. Having said that, the yield in your portfolios, whenever you get a price drawdown, you get more yield, right, as long as nothing happens. At some point, the yield is going to just outrun any price
1: declines you can even imagine in the future. So you're not. So you're saying it's all baked in the cake. It's already built into the bond markets, and there's not more interest rate increases coming. Oh, there could be more rate hikes coming if inflation keeps going up. There there definitely has
2: to be because you think I think the market's calm today because they say okay, the two-year in the U.S. is four and a half percent. If we look forward eight or nine months, we can see a path to get inflation sort of sub five. Mm. And that kind of is close enough to the mark. If six months from now we do another big fiscal package and another blah, 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 you know, that might have to go higher. But at this stage, it feels like there's so much in price. And the bond market in the last quarter, even though it behaved badly, it actually worked pretty well. And we were able to offset almost all the price declines in our portfolio just by, you know, owning a lot more, a lot of floating rate notes and things like that. But we still haven't seen a crisis mode in the bond market. It's, the bond market is still working pretty well. There's still new issues coming to market. Companies are still getting financing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're in a better spot. In fact, you know, when I look at the portfolios, you know, there's so many paths here. If you think of our five-step process, where Stacy, who's our, our hotshot quant on our team, you know, step three is stress testing. We have so many paths now, where there's double digit returns in the bond market for periods of time. Even though I'm not calling for it, I don't want you to go out there and say he's gonna call for 10%. You know, with the seven 7.5 yield, plus any kind of calmness in inflation, you could easily, easily imagine the bond market will run. And Remember 2019 and 20, the bond market did 10% in both years, right? And so then 21, we did a zero. And this 22 is a big negative mm. so far.
1: Yeah, but even if interest rates do continue to go higher, I mean, spreads are out, are they at historical highs? I, I mean, so you, all you look at is spread compression.
2: So we're not quite at historical highs. So if you think about high-yield market, because everybody loves high-yield, you get 10% yield in high-yield. Now, the spread there is 600, right? That's the sort of spread. Generally, the high-yield market's either 400 over or 800. It's 400 over the 80% of the time, 800 over 10% of the time, and then it's traveling between the two. So even if you hate high yield and say, I think defaults are going to go up, and you're going to get to the all-time wise in high yield, which is possible, that's 200 basis points from here in a four duration. That's minus 8%. High yield is yielding 10. So you would have to really, really, really hate high yield here because it's starting to have so much yield it's going to outrun price declines. You know, at some point, there's just so much money coming your way. And I was joking with the team. Imagine your income was a million percent a year. And I told you interest rates were going to go up 1%. You say, who cares? I'm making a million percent in interest. I'm just going to buy it any time. We're at that point now that's so exciting. We weren't there. Last year, there were no capital gains in the bond market. We were buying for income. We were broadly diversified. We were kind of waiting around. Now we're actually thinking, okay, we're going to build a portfolio that's designed to outrun any downturns if we can. And that over a cycle
1: will have some tremendous outcomes. Are you worried that rates are so high they start to hurt? We were out for dinner last night. The waiter was a real estate agent, mm-hmm. funny enough, and he said mortgage rates now in Arizona are eight percent. Yeah, you and I lived through thirteen and fifteen and eighteen, but so you know, not Canada, a lot of people. You know, in Canada and U.S., we have more real estate agents than houses
2: for sale. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's that's a true. State wow. So if you're a real estate agent, it probably is going to be yucky. <laughs> I'm not doubting that. And that's why the waiter's working, um, know. you know. <laughs> <laughs> kind of true. Right, <laughs> you know, at this stage you gotta pick it up at some point. Um, so yeah, we will have something break, always something breaks when, you think when interest rates go up so much, you think, if you think about what is, what is a stock, right? It's just the net present value of all the cash flows of the company, right? And if you move interest rates up, the NPV of everything on earth goes down. And that's all that's happened here. People said, oh, well, why aren't we negatively correlated? Well, it's not that we're not. It's just that the NPV of everything's going down because rates are being pulled higher, right? And no one can get out of the way of that. It doesn't matter what your best idea is until that's done. Your NPV has a massive headwind unless you have the greatest earnings story in history, right? And so that's the, 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 the part when I think through where are we now? We have done that NPV trade. And most company management teams can offset a lot of things. They're smart. They're hard-driving they know their businesses, Um, they've been able to push through price increases, so we haven't had anything really break. The closest thing was what we saw in in the the pension um, area in England, where what they're doing there, which is, uh, it's hard to believe the FSA, who's a hard-nosed regulator and regulates me, has allowed this. They're forcing the pension funds to have a 25 duration, and instead of just buying 25-year gilts, against the pension liability and calling it a day, they said, hey, we, we can get clever. We'll buy a whole bunch of seven to 10 year corporate bonds and preferreds. We'll use a derivative overlay to extend our duration. Well, that sounds great until interest rates start going up and you have to mark the market. Remember derivatives, you have to make collateral calls, right, and that's where they are. But think about the pension system in England, insurance companies and pensioners. This isn't like you got Joe and Darren running your portfolios here or hard driving PMs. These are administrators. These are insurance administrators. They go home at five. And they just mark the market. Oh, we have to mark the market. That's it. There's no anything going on there. This is a problem. So something
1: can break Mm. is the short answer. Okay, then people have got to get concerned, I guess, about credit quality in any kind of a portfolio. Yeah. What are you doing
2: about that? Yeah, so one of the things we've tried to do, we have our five-step process, is I've tried to communicate as, as much as I can to the team and the analysts in particular, If we can, let's recession-proof the portfolio. Even though I don't think all the sectors will go into recession, let's just make sure that we have sort of belt and suspenders protection. Because even if I'm losing you money and I don't like losing you money, I always want to be willing to say and able to say, it's not if you get your money back, just how many more months, right? And so if I have great bonds in there that just pay coupons and roll towards maturity, you'll do well. So think about the portfolio today. Just This is inside baseball. The portfolio's par value is 100, okay? What that is, is if all the bonds mature, you'll get $100. The market value in my portfolio is 78. That means if I just went golfing for four years, let the team do everything, and came back, you should have 22 points of upside, 22%, just as bonds mature. Because we haven't done anything with these. These are just loans to companies that we've marked down. But the company's still healthy, the company's still doing its thing. So we definitely don't want defaults, right? That's job one, no defaults. But we have this great portfolio that's just sitting here, ready to give capital gains, plus you get the interest along the way too. And so when I think about the portfolio, if you think of a way to look at what's it worth, you take you know, multi-sector bonds, or a seven and a half-ish times five duration, that's like 37 and a half points of upside over the next five years. That's what that is. Like, It won't be exactly like that. So that's the hurdle rate is 37.5% for your investments over the next five years. Because that's what you should get if stuff
1: just matures. I'm just waiting. Okay, I'm trying to do the math. Um, Mm. You need to give me a little bit more time on that. But that's probably 7% per year. And yet I'm seeing money rolling in and I hear from the banks into GICs at four and a half. Well, I'm sure the banks love that. I would too. Because then, you know, they're going to get
2: six and a half, seven. That's the biggest fee they've ever paid. Right. Yeah. I, if I'm a banker, I love this. Okay. Because the banker just buys a portfolio of bonds and skims off the value and then says, hey, I'm not going to have mark-to-market just to make you feel better. And some people, yeah, it does. Honestly, I know this. I'm
1: not dumb. And so, but they take a fee. You just don't see it. Right. Never mind. They leverage it up on all the other is. Let's turn our attention because we have a beautiful chart on what you're doing with multi-sector funds per se. Okay, so uh, tell me what I'm looking at here first. Multi-sector funds, what are they? Yeah, so we have uh, our
2: list of, of the number of different products we have. And we have different products depending on what you're trying to get done as a client, okay? And you, what your clients need. And so uh, on the very far edge, we, you see our global fixed income. We have the, the ones that look the same, investment-grade total bond fund and our global investment-grade ETF. Those are kind of similar. right? One's an ETF one, but they're kind of similar. They're very much uh, investment-grade bonds. They're going to have mostly investment-grade bonds, not so much high yield. They're going to do very well in a world where if you think there's a recession, they'll have more good quality duration, especially when we get to the peak of rates. Um, that's the kind of portfolio that would be a great complement in most markets to stocks. That's your best negatively correlated or low, low correlation and volatility controlled. The middle two or the middle ones, multi-sector bond and global bond ETF, they're pretty similar, and they should have similar returns over a cycle. They have a lot more flexibility. That's one where the beta, I can move the beta up and down. Right now, our beta is very much government-like. We're 75% or more in in investment grade in those portfolios. And so the point there is we're very defensive right now. Again, this gets to return to capital. We can win so many ways. I don't have to really push it. But those are the ones where if we get really excited about the marketplace, we could really go risk-seeking for you. So that's the question. The far two, that's where you have more beta control, you feel more comfortable what your outcomes will look like. The middle two will have more flexibility, but we'll try to communicate with you on our monthly basis on you know, how much we like the market. And then the last one, I think that's tactical credit, that's new. This is actually one where if someone wants to go risk-seeking in the bond market, there's no stocks in here, in the bond market, this is the one to consider. It's yielding something like 9% right now, it has a two and a half duration. It is got default risk, right? Because It's got more below investment grade. The goal of this one is to outrun defaults, outrun anything with just yield, right? Remember that million percent thing? We just want to pack it in there and run. So if you're worried about defaults, definitely investment grade, the first two. If you're not worried, if you think we got another couple of years, and I do, and the reason I say that is we have nothing to default to in the high yield market. Um, remember, high yield companies are just like every one of us. They see what's going on. They're not dumb. They they see and they'll start trying to protect their portfolio to the extent they can. A lot of high yield companies can get taken over by majors who will see a downturn as an opportunity to fill in the blanks wherever they had a blind spot. And so, with high yield defaults, they're too low now. They should go higher. The question you have is do you think high yield defaults should be more than 8% or less? Right now at 600 over we, we can comfortably handle six, 7% defaults, that's what that tells you. If you get to 800 over we can kinda of handle 10% defaults. And then the other thing I wanna say about high yield, don't look at high yield like it's a river of companies. There's like a thousand companies. And if you say to me we're gonna have a default surge, that's possible, I can give, give you that. Let's say you think defaults are gonna be 10% and we have a thousand companies, it's almost that many. That means that at the end of the year, we have 900 companies left. For the next year, if you call for another 10%, you have to assume of those 900, another 90 default, right? The problem you have is those companies that didn't default in the first one, they're tougher nuts to break. They're better run. They have better products. They're out of the money more. And so this is why there's no high-yield cycles. There's high-yield surges, just as an FYI. So
1: So I I like them all. I assume, though, across those five, you use similar stress testing? or Yeah, we or use stress testing. DC stress tests them all,
2: and we try to look for our blind spots and what would really hurt in the portfolio, right? And, and, you know, when we have 100 basis point increases in the Federal Reserve rate over a quarter, we can't outrun that from yield, but we're pretty much at that point now. You don't know, think, Pat, in our stress tests, especially for multi-sector, I'll just pick on it for a second, the way our stress test works, we think that over, uh, if you get 100 basis points from here, the yield can pretty much cover a 100 basis point move in the 10-year treasury from here. It couldn't a year ago because we had 3% yield. Now we're 7.5% yield. And so it becomes this game where if you're in the bond market and you're losing heart, I wouldn't. If anything... I like the bond market better now than I certainly have in a long, long time.
1: You know, it's interesting off stage that we were talking about CPI, the number being printed today, affecting different um, areas of bond market. Ten years, I think you were saying, in particular. I mean, how does that play into those? Yeah.
2: So we're trying right now to make sure that we build a portfolio that does not have any um, rate cuts in it for a couple of years. So we want to – we're hoping – that, you know, the, the rate structure, the, 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 the height of interest rates will stop, but maybe they'll stay high for a long time. And by the way, think of that as an investor. How great would it be for some retirees if they can get 6 7% in their bond market for the next 10 years? Like, that's actually pretty good versus where we were a year ago, one, zero, you know? And at least even the GICs, they're getting four, whatever it is. You know, last year, they were probably getting one. So, you know, higher rates is a good thing. For, for retirees and for investors. It can be hard for borrowers. Yeah. Yeah, good point.
1: Uh, break down that uh, blue arrow across the top. Do you have favorite sectors right now?
2: Yeah. So we, we have a five-step process. It always starts with macro. Macro is always how much risk there is. And, and the way we look at it, we take more risk when there's more return opportunity set, right? That's the most simple thing. Who helps us with that? It's Conan, Didi. So this morning, um, we were up at I was up at 5 a.m. talking to them about the CPI number, and we had some big trades ready to go. Um, and what I was asking from Kana was, or from Aditi in this case, because she was the CPI expert, is what do you think sector by sector is going to happen, and what are we keying on to decide we want to buy duration or sell duration, and so and, and to take more or less risk in your portfolio? So that was macro, and that's what Aditi and Kana, Heather and Tom do. Tom's out of our London office. Heather does most of our uh, Bank of Mexico, Bank of Brazil, she's our expert on those things. Uh, when it comes to sectors, that's where I'm talking to all the PMs around uh, Fidelity and there's, and like the Joes and the uh, Darrens to pick on those guys, you know, do you love your sector? Is it how much cash flow? Would you own a lot more of it? Would you own less of it? Is it like a forced march through the desert and you wouldn't own any? And so in sector analysis, my least favorite place to own is mortgages. U.S., Ginny, Fannie, and Freddie mortgages are my least favorite because the problem is they're they're, you get three-quarters of a percent more than the risk-free rate, and you've sold an option to mortgagees that didn't pay you back. And they're never paying you back now. It's like, they're, they're like, that mortgage you have is for 30 years in the U.S.? You're going to wear that one because they're going to be talking to their friends at cocktail parties how they got 2% uh, yield for 30 years locked in uh, in their mortgage. And they're going to do anything but pay you back. Yeah. And so we don't like mortgages here still. Uh, I'm really warming up the treasuries I'm still not a big inflation-protected guy. The hard part about inflation protected bonds, we have them in Canada, call them real return bonds. Um, the hard part is we live in a nominal world. We pretend we live in a real world. We don't. Everything you do in your life is based in nominals. Whether you take an airplane flight, your hotel room, your, how much you're paying your employees, those are nominal decisions. And so when we have tips, we say, oh, we can break it up into real and nominal. It's hard to hedge for anyone because you're not really sure did you get the breakdown right? And so um, I look at tips as a difficult asset class. And so even if you were a client of mine and a year ago you said, I see inflation being 10%, tips are still down 14%. Like, and you got it right. Right. So that's what sectors are down. like. I, I'm warming up to uh, high yield. I prefer double Bs because most double B companies could be triple B if they had to be. They just don't want to be. They get, I think that's the best part of the cap structure for them to maximize shareholder returns. And so they pick double B. I think like, like companies like Charter, it's a great example. Where it, it, like Charter could be single A if it really wanted to be, it just doesn't think that's the right cap structure. So it's double B, it's a free cash flow machine, that kind of stuff. So we like double Bs in high yield. I still like floating rate notes, best of all. I have 30% of the portfolio still floats, um, plus a lot of cash. So I like those. Cash for now, you're getting a nice overnight rate. You're going to add 75 basis points in on November 2nd, uh, or December 2nd? No, November 2nd. You're going to add 75 basis points from the Fed. Then that feels good, and you can sit there and wait for your big pitch, whatever that is in your world. Uh, I didn't hear emerging markets in there. Oh no. <laughs> good. No, the problem. You want to elaborate? So the problem you have is when interest rates are going up, the screaming you hear is emerging markets, right? Because it's as the U.S. raises rates, it makes People want to invest their money at home in U.S. and Canada more than overseas and in emerging markets, you just don't need the yield. So you know my personal favorite EM countries right now, Mexico for sure, which I have an investment in, which you've, we've had it for a long time. Uh, things like Brazil is, I'm really warming up to Brazil, and not just me, but my analysts how there is. Uh, that's one we, we're, we're excited about. The problem with the rest of the emerging markets is either they don't have enough yield to compete. Uh, with or they have so many issues that it's just not worth chasing. And so I'm very targeted on emerging markets. And I'll give you one little story, just because, you know, stories are fun. I manage money for a lot of big institutions in the US and pension funds, and and one of them had to uh, fire their emerging market manager, um, and this is a big state in the US, because the governor had a really strong ESG focus, okay? And you heard, uh, I'm not gonna go back through ESG, So they were forced to get rid of emerging markets because the emerging market manager had Russia in it, right? And the manager said, literally I have nowhere to sell these bonds to. Like, it's illegal to sell them, it's illegal to do anything. And so they were forced to to fire the manager. And I think this is going to be an issue in the future. When you do ESG and you think about emerging markets, a lot of the emerging markets aren't Canada and the US. They're places, in some cases, that are run by bad men who have bad ideas and do bad things. And you,
1: pay, and you see, you have to be super careful there. So we underwrite to that bad person standard. Uh, you have very strong opinions on currency hedged portfolios and what investors should do. We should share those. Yeah, well, so I don't use a lot of
2: currency. Uh, we are long currency risk, and you, you can see it in the prospectus in Mexico peso. That's worked out great, 9% yield there. Pretty much that. I think the Japanese yen is maybe a nice little trade if you're, if you're up to it. But in general, I want you to hedge, especially from the U.S. dollar to Canadian dollar. It's not because I, I love the Canadian dollar. It's more because I have a portfolio that I built that has a volatility of 4 or 5%. It's not that much fall. And the Canada-U.S. dollar ball is now 12 13%. And so it, the decision to buy Canada-U.S. dollar is twice as risky as what I'm doing for you. And so if I, I can't offset that trade for you is what I'm saying. So if you decided, okay, I'm going to own Jeff and... You know, and I'm going to take a currency play here. Just know that I'm not sizing my bets to help you enough on your currency. And so I want you to hedge back to Canadian dollar, even though the Canadian dollar has done terribly in the last quarter.
1: Mm. So currency neutral. Yeah. What advice do you have to provide context to clients who want to get out of fixed income portfolios and into GICs, given that the significant losses in fixed income land, which they thought was low risk? In other words, they had a bad year.
2: Yeah, they've had a bad year and it's no fun. And I'm sure that for a lot of you, having double-digit return, negative returns in the bond market is definitely not what you signed up for. We started at zero rates and financial repression ended and interest rates went up. Uh, I still really like the bond market. And the nice thing about the bond market, and I would say this, this is my personal view, if you're gonna make a mistake, make it in the bond market, not stock market. In the bond market, if I make a loan at too low a yield, I get out of that loan at maturity, right? And so we have an opportunity cost. And so the, what's happening now is we're rescaling your rate sensitivity in the bond market. So the bond market today literally is worth seven and a half percent, you know, in term, which is pretty darn nice. A year ago is worth two and a half, three, depending on what you were buying. Um, and so I, I think GICs. The hard part for me is making something illiquid, so you can't trade it, no matter what except with some crazy penalty. To me, that, just, that doesn't fit with my investment style. I'd rather have the opportunity to move my money
1: around when there's a big opportunity. Okay. Cast your mind out. So we've been talking kind of like two, three years, five years even. Cast your mind out 10 or 20 years. What do you think the big themes are going to be in the fixed income marketplace?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. That's great, Pat. Um, it's demographics for sure. The G10 um, is in population decline. We'll stop. Like, you know, we have spent 300 years watching the world grow. You're now watching the, the G10 stop growing. And the G10 matters because we have all the money so far. Maybe down the road you can tell a story about Africa, but not yet. And the G10, think about China. It's a great example. From the 1990s on, most of us were able to say China's going to be the fastest growing country. They were the last of the Asian tigers. Remember the tigers? There was the Thai bot. There was the, the we had the Malaysians, Koreans. That was the 1990s, the last tiger is China. The hard part now for China is its live births, if this is a good number, was 10 and a half million last year. Two percent of the Chinese population dies every year, that's kind of a numeral number. Well, two percent of a billion is 20, so population probably fell by eight to 10 million. They didn't say it fell, but it's definitely fallen, even the UN said it's fallen right now. And the problem with less people, if you think of GDP from first year university, it's so the number of people times the output per person, if that's your GDP. If the number of people's going down, that's a headwind. And we also know that the Chinese population's aging. And China's average population is now older than Canada and the US. This isn't a young, spry country. This is an older country, China. And the problem with that is that labor force thing, they start dropping out of the labor force. They deserve to, they're retiring, right? And so you're watching the Chinese population isn't just going down, the labor force is falling faster. And you put it together and it's really hard to be excited. So my sense about China, it's not gonna fall in the ocean, it's still a $10 trillion economy. It's just, it's gonna grow a little bit slower than Canada and the US. That's the, only demogra- that's the only theme you're worried about, demographics? Demographics is the big theme, because I think also interest rates should fall, because we have a slower growing world. So a lot of this interest rate, once we get the right of inflation, which I think we can, you know, on the other side, if you told me in three, four or five years we're watching
1: interest rates fall a lot, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, you have a, a great knack of taking a very complicated subject and making it uh, understandable to a degree, certainly transparent. Why do you place a priority in transparency? Because the bond market is anything but. Right. I, you know, one of the reasons we don't use leverage
2: is we, we, we want to be radically transparent to you. We don't, we're not trying to hide anything from you. This is your money, it's your portfolio, and we feel like you'll have more confidence in it, even when you're losing money. If you feel like, oh yeah, there's nothing really broken inside of it, it's just, you know, interest rate rises keep going up 100 base points a quarter and we just can't outrun that yet and yield. Um, and, and, you know, I've had this, you know, I've been investing for a long time. And coming out of 2008, one of the things I I've, I've found is when I was talking to my big clients, a lot of big institutional clients, when I told them that I was very excited about the market prospects, that we have so much yield, we have to get after it here. This is a great opportunity, even though Lehman has just defaulted. You know, I think a lot of our clients were really happy. Go, oh, you don't really, you're not that worried about this thing. You see, this is more of a, an opportunity rather than a crisis. And, and I think that helps a lot. And so we've been radical. We provide a two-page write-up every month that you, hopefully you get that I write along with Mike. We try to tell you what the big story is you know, how what we're thinking about central banks, what we're thinking about some sectors. And the whole point of that is just to let you know and have a dialogue with you about where our headspace is at. And I can tell you my headspace right now is I really like the bond market. Me personally, I like the bond market a
1: lot. Uh, it feel I, know, I get that, and that's a nice message to leave them with, no question. But are you worried that you might be catching a knife? Well, you could be. You
2: could be. The good news is we got 2% yield a quarter now. So for us to lose money for you, I now have to have your prices go down by 2%. It can happen. It can happen because I've proven it can happen year to date. So um, <laughs> it definitely happen. But at some point, when, I, when the price goes down, it turns into yield. Because we're trying to underwrite it so that all those bonds in there, they'll be there for you in six months and two years. So that we know where maturity is. And we're looking up at maturity prices. And that's a beautiful thing because I don't have to do anything. I don't have to trade with anyone. I just have to wait. It's not necessarily a great story, but that's one of the reasons I like bonds. It's not if you get your money back, just win.
1: You've been in the business for three decades. And you started off by saying that this has been a tough year overall. Yeah. Uh, But is the corollary uh, that it's the best investment environment you've seen in three decades? Yes. That's how I feel.
2: I think this is as good as it gets here. It doesn't get any better than this. It's like Euchre, right?
1: you got a lone hand. Right, right. Well, that was excellent. we got two more minutes left. So <laughs> what's, the, what's the monkey wrench? What's the one thing everybody needs to watch out for? Well, you always have, you know, Black Swan events. I heard that yeah. this morning.
2: That's always valuable. The thing about the portfolio, we're trying to make sure it's a portfolio that's robust for almost anything we can imagine. And, you know, there's always stuff that comes out of the blue and pushes the date. You get your money back further. But the bond market, you know, the monkey wrench, it's less and less. And the other thing is, if you go back to the 1990s, right, and I, I blame, I'll you know, pick on Canada a little bit. We, we came in, we had high deficits in Canada. You know, if you remember, we were spending, our interest payments as a share of government revenue the, in Canada it was like 30%, and that was just too much. Remember Prime Minister Kretchen comes in, and he comes in with a big agenda, and he ended up not having a big agenda. He's ended up balancing budgets. I think that's the next big thing is we're gonna to listen to government after government say, we probably won't be spending a lot, we'll be trying to get our fiscal house in order so we have more flexibility
1: for the future. Uh, I'm gonna leave this uh, discussion on fidelity, the, the big picture, because traditionally, I think, a long time ago, fidelity was thought as an equity shop. You are as big, I would say, or bigger? Yeah, we're bigger than the
2: equity group now. We don't tell people that, but...
1: Um, yeah, well, we just did. Yeah, we just did, yeah. We're,
2: it, it's good, um, you know, we have a great product. Um, our team in our five-step process, their team in Merrimack uh, is as good a team as we've ever sort of put on the ice, if you want to look at it that way. This, this group that we have right now are awesome. And I feel like um, they're highly motivated. They, they're ready to go. And they're smart. They're not, we're not risking the franchise here. We're not risking your money on crazy stuff. We believe that we're going to get this money back just from yield and capital gains. We just can't see exactly how. And the team's in great shape. And, and so I have no doubt that um, if we come back in five more years, we'll probably be even bigger.
1: In the meantime, can you invite me back every time I like Arizona? Yeah, yeah, you yeah, too. <laughs> <Me> too. <laughs> Jeff, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Pat. thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.